This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Good morning, Clay Kane. That's your opening. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, good everything, everyone. Hello. Yes. Uh, don't adjust your screens. Dr. Carr is out in them screets with the birds and the bees. It is a beautiful, beautiful morning uh, beautiful. in our nation's first capital. And yes. uh, first of all, let me say good morning to all of the Nubians, especially the mothers uh, as we go into this weekend, uh, where we celebrate you every day. Actually, so everybody that is mothering and doing the mothering thing, God bless you. Uh, And Dr. Carr, thank you for this. Um, Thank you. And it's so funny. I was coming up on the train. I got the early train. I I left Union Station at 3 a.m. And you know know black folks. We work the shifts. Other people don't want to work. And the black women were in force on Amtrak, the conductors. And I'm looking at the sisters. And as they were coming in and people were getting on the train, they were wishing all the women happy Mother's Day. I said, see, that's what black women do. It was a beautiful thing at three o'clock in the morning. So anyway, yes, happy Mother's Day to everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do my morning getting nature with the birds uh, in the nature uh, every single morning. And now I listen to audiobooks. Well, I've been doing that so I can multitask, right? So uh, first I want to thank you. I, I was always a reader. I was yes. always, always a reader. But I'm now reading things I never thought I would be reading mm. differently. And so you, uh, maybe a month ago in Office Hours, you brought up Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, Hari, I think it is, H-A-R-I. Yes. Yes. And I finally uploaded it because I just finished Jenny uh, Rometty's, um IBM, the IBM uh, book. Uh, good power. I just finished that. And uh, so I was like, hmm, okay, let me let me pick this one up. So I uploaded it into my Audible and I'm I'm on chapter three. So I'm wondering, did you put it down after chapter three? Because that's the sleep chapter. Yeah, no, I know the sleep deprivation is real. So yeah, I was triggered, but but uh <laughs> yes, no, I mean he he had me at taking his uh, nephew to Graceland. And the boy wouldn't stop looking at the phone, even though he's looking at the thing that's on the phone. So, I mean, <laughs> no, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? I assume you're going to talk with him at some point soon. Yeah, I, I am. But I want to talk with you because, you know, when I, as I think about stolen focus, I yes. think about us stolen. Yes. And, you know, we have been conditioned to think, and then I'm reading, I know you're, you're working with Sharif Almeki and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot, I'm doing a lot with some homeschooling people and I'm bringing them through. I have a person doing a curriculum for us and I'm sitting thinking about my childhood spent reading like all the time. Every week I would be at Barnes and Noble with my little allowance, getting a book and what it did to shape my imagination and a lot of novels and our kids are not reading across the board, but our kids are not reading and our adults are not reading. I think we no. spend 17 minutes. It, this is what he said. 17 yeah. minutes a day reading. 17 you minutes. See that? And I was like, so what? 17 minutes a day reading. But how we read now because of the screens, we're, we're, we're reading transactionally. We're, we're not reading. We're not using our full capacity to read, to digest, to remember, to focus. And I was like, a hundred years from now, it's going to be a problem. But it's also as a writer, I'm thinking I might have to write differently because there's an audience that's not ready for what I may be putting on paper because Mm -hmm. of how. And even this is what triggered me reading newspapers because you often pull up newspapers 
and, no it, and it got me and you got it now and uh you know some of y'all so may say, oh, mayor's race tuesday don't forget to vote anyway yes <laughs> you know you know you're old-fashioned you got a newspaper my father used to read a lot of newspapers but what he is saying in his book is the reading of a newspaper, the way newspapers are laid out is for you to have a deeper understanding of things. So you're going to go from one article to the next to the next. It's not just headlines and scrolling. It's right. there's a story arc in a newspaper that you can only discover through the pages. And I was like, oh, my goodness. He's and as a working journalist, I know you know that better than most of us because you, you know how they're laid out. This is a conversation, ain't just stories. Talk to us a little bit about that, because he's—I mean—he's obviously a, a journalist and a writer. But you, you in, the, in, the, in those newsrooms, how much thinking goes into what goes where when a you're lot, composing? A lot, a lot, and and it also made me realize the the curation. So the heavily curated way in which we are getting this fire hose of information is also insidious. If you think about who is making the decisions about yes. what. And, and the manipulation. So this is what triggered me this morning. And yes, yes, all of that. And I forgot because I've been doing the screens for so long that I forgot the, the magic of reading a, a newspaper. It's not just about the feel of the paper or the magic of reading a book, which we're going to mm, talk about. Mm. It's, not just, no, indeed. it's not just the pages. It's the relationship That's with right. your brain, with your soul, with yourself, with these words. It's the relationship. So as I was, I was reading, I was also, you know, he was talking about how you know, we have been so disconnected through the screen that we don't, our brains are like not functioning well. And That's so right. if we're raising a generation or a nation of people who don't deeply think, aren't in tune with themselves because they don't, aren't wired that way, how do we, how do we function? You know, like, and especially there's a word gap. There's, you know, there's all of these things. Like, how do we, because communication is everything. This is how we solve problems. This is how we, you know, build community through communication. Absolutely. So if, if folk will run away, even in this space, in class with card, the height of the pandemic, when people had to sit down, we would have 50,000 people on a Saturday coming in to engage with us, up to 100,000. And now it's, you know, a handful, you know, in, in relationship because people are busy. But are you too busy for your soul? Like, I'm just, so when I think about stolen focus, I think about, how we have allowed curators, people, and it's all about capitalism. So he gets to that. We need to be on the screens because we need to consume. We need That's to right. go on Amazon and buy stuff. You got to have a TV in your room because there's commercials and we need to get you because if you stop doing that, if you slept one more hour, That's right. part, of the, part of the economy would collapse. I was like. That's right. That's so right. all of us well, would part of, part, of, part of the profit margin. Right. Although the banks are doing better now, their first quarter this year, uh, they've made more money. And I thought the banks banks are going to collapse. No, 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 no. That was the show. We made yes. more money this quarter than. So yeah, but yeah, we if we were to come off of that, every second would impact the profit margin. For sure. So then, so then, because you know, I'm always like, what's next? So then I, I asked myself this question: If we all slept more and read more and stopped shopping because they wanted us to, what? What, what impact would that have on our individual communities, right? Because it always comes back to us, right? So yes. like live somewhere, how does that impact your household? How does that, like, if, if we start thinking about our habits in a way that, because we're, we think we're free, but we're actually in this matrix, for real, for yeah. real. Sounds like the matrix, right? Real, for real, right? Yeah. So 
how will that, you know, if we're not reacting to, you know, Anita Baker or whatever's going on, you know, if we're not reacting to everything because we're actually sitting and processing and thinking deeply and reading mm -hmm. and having our souls awakened and understanding like what, what would change? And I, I smiled because I, I know exactly what would happen. So, uh, and I, so I wanted to say thank you this morning. Oh, thank yeah, you. Let's stay in that vein. This is the vein we're in. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it it was something, wasn't it? When we were forced to be still, tens of thousands of people were in this conversation with us every single weekend. In one case, we talked about Dave Chappelle, and there was about 200,000 people or so or more. And now 15, 20, maybe if we're good, 22, 23. But here's the thing. Who are those people? Who are those views? It's quite striking. I have, I mean, on the way to the train station last night here in Philadelphia from 30th Street Station to here, I have literally had conversations with people who are in these conversations with us. And I'm saying it may not be as many people in terms of volume, but the people who are here are people who are influencing other people. I ran into a uh, uh, Etan Thomas's cousin, you know, Etan Thomas, the, 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 the author, the, of course, you know. No, 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 the activist. The yeah. activist, no question. The activist who, who uses his many gifts, poet, writer, interview journalist, beautiful, brilliant brother, Etan, good brother. Uh, his, his son, Malcolm, I mean, you know, it's about college time for Malcolm. I haven't seen Malcolm in a couple of years. Last time I saw him was Howard Homecoming. They were over at Sankofa, sitting down building. I ran into his cousin coming into Union Station, 2.30 in the morning this morning, he and his mom were getting ready to uh, get an Uber to go home. They had just come back into town. His cousin had been in Ghana for the last, he said, about four months. He's working on some things. They're working on some stuff to, to build schools and to connect STEM programs. He said, I don't miss y'all. I don't miss y'all on Saturday. I don't miss y'all on Monday. Now I'm saying, yeah, it may not be 50,000, but who are those 20,000 people? And he's talking about programs. You know what I'm saying? That's influencing everybody. Go ahead. No, no, but let me be clear. I, I, I've always been narrow is the road that leads to salvation. Future. Oh, it's no question about it. That's kind of the edict that I live by. So I never stress over our popularity or numbers and people that don't know. If you know, you know, because you're supposed to know exactly. every itchy little ear. You know, it's like there, there's so many scriptures around. It's not about popularity, but it, it does speak to, to me, more so the folk that are here are here to build. But exactly. I'm saying in the larger society that we have to interact with, that are not functioning well. And so they're impacting our safety and our lives because they, they're, uh, and, and so that was my concern, concern is that like, even though you now are awakening and so many people have libraries, there are people that have not read a book. I actually had a woman call my show yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, I wasn't on yesterday, said that she never read a book cover to cover and she was in her seventies. And I don't, mm. And that's I'm saying, not unusual. yeah, not and unusual. I'm saying that's not unusual, but what does that mean for the rest of us? Because as we continue to evolve and grow and, and communicate with one another and build things and the world is doing the exact opposite and they have the numbers, you know, cause it's still a numbers game as it relates to um, power and control. I'm like, yeah. man, we don't need everybody, but we, we need a few more people to, um, get invested in reading and at least well well let's let, let's that's why i said i think you laid this out beautifully because and, and we and we to use one of all favorite phrases we connect the dots now the 
the process of influencing is there. We're really engaged, as you know well, in an act of recovery. We are really in an act of recovery, recovering memory. So the people involved in that work, as you say, it is a narrow path, but that narrow path then opens up into the type of influences necessary. Let me give you a very specific example. I'm here because um, uh, our, our brother Martin Lamont Hill um, has, he, he does something every uh, May around Malcolm X's birthday. You know, Malcolm's birthday is on the 19th. Wow. Um, called the Malcolm X Symposium. Uh, he's up Germantown Avenue in uh, Northwest Philly at his bookstore, uh, named literally for his uncle Bobby, who engendered in him, among others, uh, his, his father, you know, love of reading. Uncle Bobby's bookstore, they'll well, be there. I think the first uh, panel starts at noon. Herb Boyd's in town, Tony Montero, a bunch of other people. Um, so we'll all be up there from noon until I think around six. And so that's why I'm here in Philly. The, the idea that if we could get enough people, we could change everything is, of course, true. But the question is, how do you get enough people? And this is something that we were talking about, uh, Karen, we, as we were you know, talking in advance of today, you know, just batting around this idea, you know, how do we punch through the noise to engender deeper thinking and action? One strategy, of course, is to kind of shape this thinking work, this slow thinking work to the sensibilities of the age. Well, we know that we live in a society, a global society, that is driven by the market, that is driven by profit, that is driven by, for lack of a better label, capitalism, although I think it's much deeper than that in terms of the cultural posture. It's really about how do individuals profit off of the labor of other individuals. And we know what drives that in this society is attention. You've got to get people's attention, and then you've got to give them to get them to exchange something of value in 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 return for something that may not have much value. So, do I want to see somebody slap somebody on this cable network uh, that I'm paying a subscription fee to? Uh, am I really concerned when a convicted? Uh, well, we won't even get into the crimes, but uh, is sitting on the cable news network and being interviewed by a former Fox News. Uh, presenter uh, who is now poised to uh, replace uh, a brother in terms of Don Lemon, who himself, a few cycles of the sun ago, was engaged in a kind of anti-black spectacle. Well, well, all of that takes up breath, takes up time, but most importantly, takes up a few dollars a month in a cable package. And that's the objective. So when that attention span objective is reduced to this lowest common denominator of retaining attention and it's, in, and it's connected with the technology. Well, then what you see then is it's easier to connect people's attention by spectacle. So the books we read, books with incredible titles and pr promising to give us new historical insights, the, the number of words per page keep shrinking. There's a brand new uh, biography of Martin Luther King uh, that is out. Um, it'll be at the house by the time I get back uh, tomorrow. Um, I was reading a review that Kalefa Santa wrote in the uh, new issue of The New Yorker. 
um, Martin Luther King Jr. and respectability politics. And it's so interesting because Kalefa Santa, of course, who's been writing, a journalist, you probably know him, who's been writing for The New Yorker for a long time and other journals. I found a copy of his father, his father's memoir, interestingly enough, in a used bookstore a few months ago. But at any rate, one of the things he's talking about is he's, you know, Ing, Jonathan Igg has gotten access to these new files, FBI files, new reports. And I guarantee you the number of words on each page of this biography is going to be fewer words on the page than Lawrence Riddick's biography of King, who wrote the first biography of King, Crusader Without Violence. Uh, David Leverick Lewis, who wrote one of the early ones, King of Biography, going to be fewer words per page. What Manner of Man, uh, King's Morehouse classmate, uh, wrote a biography um, in the wake of his assassination. Uh, certainly going to be a lot fewer words per page than David Garrow's book, uh, Bearing the Cross, or even Taylor Branch's three volumes on that period from the 1950s to the assassination of King, uh, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. And when they give out Pulitzer Prizes, the Pulitzers were just given out. When you see who they give them to and what they give them to, I'm like, you know, it's like two-thirds the number of words per page that used to be on the book. And for those of us who savor language, well, that's just unacceptable. You know, I read the books, but it's, it takes a lot uh, less time. And it's interesting because Robert Gottlieb, um, uh, his memoir I recommend called Avid Reader. He's an editor. Uh, he's advanced age now. I think he's right, 91. You know, he's the one who edits, among so many other people over the years, he edits Robert Cairo. So Cairo, uh, there's a new documentary that came out at the end of last year called Turn Every Page. And uh, Gottlieb lives in New York, he and his wife. And there was, a, there was an article in New York Magazine late last year, maybe December, where uh, the, the interviewee is only about two-page article, like a quick interview. Like I think it's called something like 123 Minutes with Robert Gottlieb. And so they say on the second floor of his townhouse in New York is his study, books, you know, you got a picture of him with the books. I'm saying, see, that's what I need right there. I want that right here. I want that right here. But at any rate, they said he doesn't leave that room. He says he has a pen. He has his paper. He has the stuff he's editing. And that's what he does. And the picture has got as a big Mac uh, laptop on the desk. He said, yeah, I go to that after I edit hand. I'm writing. And Cairo is promising this fourth volume of... Uh, L, the LBJ uh, bio that he's been doing now for decades. And there's no deliverable time. I mean, in fact, what Gottlieb says is, I hope that we get this done before uh, actuarial reality sets in. In other words, one of us or both of us die. And of course, Robert Cairo came to Gottlieb first with the first major biography. He himself was a journalist. Oh, the, I think he may have been working for the Daily News. You might remember. You probably remember. He, um, the first book he did, which he brought in at something like, I don't know, was it 1,300, 1,400 pages? And Gottlieb was like, they'll never do it. He said, we could publish it in two volumes. And Gottlieb told him, no, ain't nobody going to read no book on Robert Moses, the, 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 the mad scientist architect of modern New York, basically, like literally the city planner. Nobody going to read two volumes on him. We'll be lucky to get one. So they shrunk it down by like, I think, a third or it still came in hefty. But my point is this. 
the power broker probably many people who will watch this now probably read that book that was the first one they collaborated on Cairo delivers these tones these tones now let's pause here just for a second and think about this in the context of how you opened up Rob. what does it mean to be a reader in this interview with Robert Gottlieb one of the you know and he talks about this he says you know, editors should be invisible. You shouldn't, I shouldn't be out telling people how I shaped this book. The writer shaped the book. The editor is bringing that out, you know. And I think about, what was that? Uh, they made it into a, a, a movie. Uh, Jude Law was in it. He played, uh, what's the guy that wrote Look Homeward Angel? Uh, Thomas Hardy, was it? His editor. Ooh, I almost had his name. Damn it, I almost came. It's called Editor of Genius. Is the, is the book that the movie is based on. Max, 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 it'll come to me. One of us, it'll come to one of us. But at any rate. Is it Max Perkins? Max Perkins. Yes. You saw that movie. You know what I'm talking about? Max I Perkins. Not, I did not, and I don't know. <laughs> but what I, I just want to say one thing. Yesterday. Come on in. Jump on in. Yesterday, my last class, I was talking to my students because, you know, I'm working on a book. And I have yes. a really, really lovely editor. In my entire 30-plus book writing career, I've only had two really good editors. And it's important. Like, I won't write anymore without a good editor. But you're right. They're it's the because I need to be challenged. Great writers. Facts. Only Come on now. You're only a great writer because of the. It's just like you and I. It's a day. Yes. It's a day. Yes. It doesn't happen. It's not like a singular silo of genius. That no. It's the process, which is what makes community and society so important. That we have each other. That we challenge. So I have right now a really lovely. She is amazing, and she's young. And I was like, okay, young lady, she she brought something. I was like, oh, because I was struggling a little bit. And then she had, you know, in a in a very gentle way, a different view, and it opened everything up for me. But that can only happen in editing. So as a writer, I'm I'm like, there are no editors anymore at any of these publications worth a damn, or at any of these publishing houses worth a damn, because they don't train people how to be great editors. And I reminded them, Toni Morrison was an editor for 20 plus years at Random House. Editor. Editor, okay, we need great editors. And for me as a writer, I won't write if I don't have a good editor. I won't, I, I won't. I just, I'm, and I haven't, if you notice, I have not done any journalistic writing because I everybody that I've run into, with one exception, and I think I might like to um, engage with the the new editor at uh, Huffington Post. Um, she was editing Michael Harriet for a minute too. She's really dope. And I'm, okay. Why am I escaping her name? She's been on my show a thousand times, but you know, but there are very few people um, because okay. the the, the it's not necessary anymore, right? For these publications. Well, it's not necessary to move product because it's not about uh, reading. It's about selling books, right? You, right. So I mean, if, right. if people can't if people can't read, then you don't need to write. And, and, and Ms. Morrison said something uh, about that very specific. She said good you can be a great reader without being a writer but you can't be a writer without being a great reader and this is it's, it's look it's the you're right this is how we build this conversation this conversation you and i having that we're having in this space is absolutely testament to the fact that this is collective work um you know people often open their books with you know this is a collective work they think everybody said but the mistakes are mine I remember laughing out loud the first time I read an author say it correctly, in my opinion, when he said, this is a collective work. 
and uh, everything good about it is collective and all the mistakes are collective. In other words, why would you say all its mistakes are yours when it was a collective work? So you the only one, because you were the last fingers on it? Nah, if you made a mistake, you made a mistake. So I'm saying all that to say this, and, and you really laid this out beautifully, Prof. Robert Gottlieb in the article, because you said, you know, they're, they're, they're not any good, they're, they're very few good editors, you know, they're not being trained. You know what Gottlieb said? Gottlieb said, they asked him, the, the interviewer, you know, so what was your process? How did you develop into being a good editor? He said, I don't have a process. I read. He said, you know what an editor is? An editor is a reader. So I read everything. I just read. And I thought about that. Now, I've written enough to publish. I'm very much looking forward to and continue to scribble notes. And I've outlined probably six books since we've been doing this. And I'm look now I'm getting in the rhythm again. One of the challenges for me for, re for writing is that I read all the time. And things that I read, and I won't name any names, I won't name any books, but I'm going to tell you right now, most of these books are trash relative to great writing. Because you read, and I'm reading the sentences like, who, who, who looked at this? This ain't the person who wrote's fault. Oh, no, this, is, this doesn't fit here. And I'm talking about books that if I name them, oh, I know that book, really, go read it. Or better yet, go read a whole lot of other stuff, which is why last year when we read, did the line-by-line -line reading of Carter Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro, which originally was newspaper articles, columns. When we read The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois, 19th, early 20th century prose, but, but, but a different time, but the use of language, when he's describing rural Georgia, when he's describing Atalanta on the wings of Atalanta, when he's writing the chapter, The Coming of John or The Passing of the Firstborn, when he describes Nina, his wife, giving birth to their son, Burghardt, and he says, you know, she danced with death and from, un from, from beneath her breast, the life was, I mean, man, this is, and before anybody says, well, that was then, this is now, I've, I've read Souls of Black Folk with 15, 16, 17 year olds in Philadelphia Freedom School. One of those young people that was in that room when we read it the first time here in Philly, Denise Thompson, that's my heart, that's my child. She's now a professor at Bowie State University. Came to Howard, got her bachelor's, went to Boston University, got a master's, got a PhD from Ohio State, wrote her dissertation on Beyonce, Lemonade, and other yellow things. Reading it through Ifa and Oshun, because she's an initiate. But that child, that love for language, really took a quantum leap by wrestling with W.E.B. Du Bois when she was 16 years old from a book from 1903. It's not that it can't be done, but to the point you raise when you open up, it has to be done lovingly, collectively, accretively, slowly. It has to be engendered and developed. And so Robert Gottlieb said, I wasn't trained, I'm a reader. That's what editors are, readers. So when someone is recommended as a great editor, I just say, okay. Because if you are a reader, and I don't mean if you read a lot, and I've seen more who read all of James Patterson's books. Hold on for a minute, it's eight o'clock. I'm sorry, nine o'clock. You hear that bell? Y'all see that building right there? What what is that? What is that? That doing? is that is the bell that replaced the bell that everybody knows, the passing stow bell. It's known as the Liberty Bell. That's over there. Hold on. <laughs> you hear that clang? Mm -hmm. That's the bell that's in the tower 
of the old Pennsylvania State House. That's the one called Independence Hall right there. That is the first capital of the United States. That's where, to quote again, the great Alton Maddox, the fleeing felons that some people sadly call founding fathers, signed the Declaration of Independence. Now, across the street, right there, I'm pointing at it, it's not even a block, is what they call Washington Square. Well, that ain't what we called it. In the governance formation, we called it Congo Square. That's where the Africans would do in Philadelphia what the Africans in New Orleans did, what the Africans in Pernambuco and Salvador Bahia did, what the Africans in Port-au-Prince did. This is where they would gather one day a week and do their rituals. And it's also where they would bury their dead. Ultimately, that also became uh, a field where those who fought against the British, those soldiers were buried. And it also became a place when the yellow fever hit and Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and Sarah Allen and them boys, Morris Brown them saved the city from the yellow fever epidemic in the 18th century. That's where the bodies were buried. There is a monument to one of the Revolutionary War sailors, uh, soldiers who is not known. And it's called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. That's the original Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Before it was any of that, it's where the Africans did their thing. And when you hear that clang, clang, from the Pennsylvania State House, the one that everybody is forced on their knees to worship as the place where liberty was born. This is called the most historic half mile in the United States. And it's true. The criminals who broke with the mom and them called Great Britain did it right there in that house. That, that, that building was built in 1753 for the regional government of the colony, Pennsylvania, William Penn, who had Africans enslaved. But this whole area, crime scene, crime scene, and one day, maybe we walk around again. I'm look free. Oh my God. This in class, this space, and the narrative and Nubia. Look, I said I was going to rock my Nubia joint for the Malcolm X Symposium today because, you know, the world needs to know. But, yeah, Gottlieb, now that the bell has stopped, totally nine o'clock. Gottlieb said, I'm a reader. Now, that seems very simple until you begin to investigate what that means. And as I said, Malcolm's birthday on the 19th here for the Malcolm X Symposium. Uh, congratulations to all the graduates, high school graduation season, college graduation. While we're here, uh, one added benefit to the Malcolm X Symposium being today is that I'm not in Washington, D.C., where The Mummy Returns is store. Uh, I think there's going to be a show at the uh, Capital One Center in Chinatown today where Joe Biden is going to talk to some people. I, there was a long article in this morning's New York Times where they interviewed a bunch of Howard students about how they felt about life and Joe Biden talking to them at graduation. And, you know, like a lot of uh, contemporary newspaper articles, it was severely underwhelming. But the thing that I found fascinating was, you know, there were a couple of pictures, there was at least one photograph I remember of one of the students standing in front of the Founders Library. And I joked with my students, I said, now, if I stood in front of Founders Library with a baseball bat, and you know, I, I, have to, I probably need to lay on the couch and talk to somebody because most of my examples when it comes to intellectual work seem to involve violence, guns and bats. But anyway, <laughs> if I stood in front of this library with a baseball as as bat. Talking, as long as you're just talking about it, that's all. Well, of course, of course. And I think, I think probably because, again, in this attention-based culture, anything more subtle would just go in one ear and out the other or probably just in front of the eye. Even as people are writing more than ever, but not writing because these two thumbs write all the time. You're writing more now than probably any generation in human history, but you're not, you know, it's not coming out your mouth, it's coming out your thumb. So I said, if I stood in front of this library with a bat, 
and said, I'm going to bust y'all in the stomach for everybody that ain't never checked a book out of this library. How many of y'all would emerge unscathed? Oh, sorry. How many of y'all would not get hit? See, you see how the language? <laughs> anyway. Right. But every graduation photograph being taken at HBCUs around the country, they're taking them in front of the library. I remember walking in there about five years ago, up, going to my office, and a couple of students were out in the hall in front of my office. They had brought some tables and chairs and stacked up all these books, and they were... I said, oh, this is wonderful. What y'all doing? It's graduation photos. That's wonderful. Have y'all read any of those books? No. Mm -mm. Have you ever checked the book out of this library? Oh, Dr. Carr. No, no, I just asked you. Yes, yes, no question. No. So why are you putting books in the photograph? Because we live in a society now where the fetish of the book, the object of the book, the idea of the book is the thing of value. You ain't got to read the book. In fact, why are you sitting there reading books? Lost your damn mind? Can I get to Kim? Can I scroll it? And to the point you raised earlier about this question of screens, uh, I think it's Alberto Manguel, the, the very famous writer, essayist, writes a lot about books. The Library at Night is one of his books. Uh, just, I mean, man, this guy. Uh, Packing My Library is another one that he wrote, Night for a Book of Essays. But if unless I rem unless I'm combining Alberto Miguel with another author, there's a book I, I'm saying he wrote it, but I had to look it up. It's called The Traveler, The Tower, and The Worm. The Traveler, The Tower, and The Worm. I think that's him. But at any rate, and I got the app up. So again, the technology is fantastic when you combine it with a foundation. So if that's it, let me pull it up here. The Traveler, The, the Tower, and The Worm. These are three metaphors that a man who has spent most of his adult life, life as a reader, as a, as a collector, as a bibliophile, a book collector, and a writer, he's writing about the process of reading. He says, when you open a book, and here's one I'm going to be talking about today. This is one I showed you a couple of weeks ago. Brother Malcolm's Strategic Pan-Africanism, my man Peter Bailey. What Mark, the, the panel Mark wanted me on today is to talk about Malcolm X and his in, and international struggle. And Peter Bailey was the editor of the OAAU uh, newsletter. And uh, that, of course, is the Organization of Afro-American uh, Unity newsletter. I'm going to show you all something. Uh, this is section three of his book, coverage of Brother Malcolm's visionary strategic pan-Africanism in the nine issues of the Organization of Afro-American Unity's newsletter, Black Lash. What Peter does he literally reproduces the newsletters. Here's the OAAU newsletter. When Malcolm is giving his famous statement at the Organization of African Unity, the African heads of state treat Malcolm X, a traveler without portfolio. He's not representing the nation of Islam. He's certainly not representing the United States government. He doesn't have any elected uh, position. He is simply traveling in Africa. His sister, his sister Ella, in Boston, financed the plane ticket because he's out the nation. In fact, they fighting over the house. Betty and the girls are in New York. And, you know, he's got to get he got to get his people guard them. You know what's going on? You know, obviously the feds and that's not just the FBI, it's the CIA and all of them. So he's over there and they they not only allow him to observe this meeting of the Organization of African Unity, 
founded just a few years before, 1952, memory serves me, Crow 61. And this is 1964. They say, brother, we're going to give you an opportunity to speak. Malcolm X addressed. What, what, who does he represent? He says, I represent the 22 million so-called Negroes of the United States because ultimately our problems are your problems. There's no such thing as civil rights. We need to be talking about human rights. We need to bring the United States of America up before the United Nations. What say ye? And so Gamel Nasser, uh, Milton Obote in Uganda, Julius Nereri in Tanzania, Sekou in Guinea, who, by the way, they try to lean on Harry Belafonte, who's friends with Sekou to say when uh, Malcolm shows up in Guinea, don't let him in. Sekou is like, word? Malcolm, come stay in my house. My point, <laughs> Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, who is introduced to Malcolm, or at least who's give, who, who gets an audience, uh, who Malcolm gets an audience with because of Shirley Graham Du Bois, who's living in West Africa. Remember we talked about when Alice Wyndham made transition. We talked about her a long time. Alice Wyndham, Julian Mayfield, um, Maya Angelou, all them staying in, 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 in Ghana. But these heads of state, Ahmed Ben Bella in, in, in Algeria, these heads of state, he has 16 different countries invite him to come speak. And he goes to most of those places to speak. He spends four and a half, 18 weeks, so what's that, four and a half months in Africa and in Europe. Goes to Paris, sets up a, a chapter of the organization Afro-American Union in Paris. Goes to England, debates at Oxford on this question, this question of black freedom, this question of freedom. Uh, the baby is like, hello, people love their dogs. Anyway, the point is that all of this process, Malcolm gets an audience and speaks at the organization Afro-American Unity. And Peter Bailey, the editor of the newsletter, puts it in the OAAU newsletter. Malcolm X statements to the OAAU. Uh, part two of his speech in the next uh, one. And then he talks about the new chapters of the OAAU. And anyway, so my point is this. In talking about this book, one of the things I'm going to raise is that Malcolm X Everybody who encounters him for the first time, and those who knew him for a long time, like John Henry Clark, who writes about how the Constitution, the framework, and the structure and the Constitution for the Organization of Afro-American Unity was planned out at Dr. Clark's Brownstone on 137th Street in Harlem. He said, Malcolm, there are two things that I'm going to mention now that are essential to understanding Malcolm. Number one, Brother Malcolm, as Baba Peter would call him, Number one, he was an incessant, voracious reader. John Clark would say, you know, uh, Malcolm would send somebody around my house, around by my house to say, look, I'm getting ready to talk about the Congo. I'm getting ready to talk about what's going on in the Soviet Union. I need to understand China. Put me together some documents. Clark would put together a big, thick folder. So here you go. Malcolm would absorb it all. And then the next time he would hear Malcolm, he would say, Malcolm saw things in those documents that I didn't see. He needed from me the factual stuff, but the analysis, that was all him. The second of the two things was that as he absorbed things, he transformed. So today when we're talking, we're going to talk about Malcolm's internationalism. In fact, there's a great book by uh, Marika Sherwood called Malcolm X Visits Abroad. It's an excellent book. Actually, this is published by Sahai Publishers, East African. Um, what she does is, what Sherwood does is go through all of his trips abroad. So there you see 
Mecca when he made uh, his Hajj, Beirut and Cairo, April to May 1964. That's important because it wasn't the first time that Malcolm had been to the Saudi Peninsula. 1959, he had gone. Elijah Muhammad had sent him over there. Elijah Muhammad wanted to make the There's speculation, and Sherwood also speculates that the reason Malcolm didn't go to Hajj before he left the nation, when he was over in 59, maybe he didn't want to go before Elijah Muhammad got to go. And so, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, again, it gets very complicated. The more you know, the more you put things in context. The more you don't rely on a movie, however good or bad or indifferent it is, for the information. But at any rate, Sherwood talks about this fact. And while he's over there, like whenever he was, wherever he is, he's constantly reading. He's constantly listening, but he's reading and reading and reading, and he's transforming. Malcolm is a black nationalist. Arguably, the roots of his black internationalism, his idea that black folk are connected all over the world, go to the nation of Islam, because that is not far from the theology of the NOI, the idea of the Afro-Asiatic. Like, we're all connected globally. Only two races, Yakub and okay. Either way, however you put that way of knowing, however you characterize the NOI way of knowing, you can't say that it is confined to any of these imaginary lines that have been drawn on these maps, certainly over the last 500 years by the, in the age of Europe, the dying age of Europe is about time. But Malcolm, as he is learning and reading, he's transforming. So the whole kind of conventional thing people talk about and say, well, you know, Malcolm went to Mecca and he realized all oh, white people weren't evil. That's such a flattened, simplistic view. No, Malcolm knew that race is a fiction. He talks about that. He writes about that. But what he also understood was the politics of whiteness. You got to punch it in the face. You can't ignore whiteness. You can't finesse whiteness. You can't make peace with whiteness. It must be dissolved because out of whiteness comes all the rest of this hierarchical mess. And so I'm saying that because it's important for us to understand that the more we study, the more we read, the more we can then use those tools. And Malcolm is a living example of that because as he read, as he studied, he transformed. And as he transformed, he became more and more dangerous because at the heart of that transformation was a determination to be a freedom fighter, a liberation warrior. And as a result, this guy got to go. This guy got to go. In fact, Bill Strickland, uh, he's still around, elder now. He's teaching at University of Massachusetts for decades. Uh, he was one of the early uh, recruits to the Institute of the Black World, as we've talked about many times in this space. Uh, Bill Strickland, who was the person who wrote the companion volume to and was at the heart of the documentary, PBS documentary, Make It Plain, which is an excellent documentary on Malcolm, by the way, if you're going to watch the documentary. It's not a bad place to start. In terms of Malcolm, what Bill Strickland said about Manning Marable's book on Malcolm X, which won the Pulitzer Prize and all the prizes published posthumously a couple of days after uh, um, Manning Marable made transition. A book, again, one of those books with increasingly fewer words per page. One of those books that the more you read, the more you see the, the gaping holes in. Uh, in fact, let me see if I have a copy of Haki's uh yeah, I don't know if I can find it. Wait, let, let me, me see. find out. You got you got your bookshelf set set up out there. I didn't bring. You know what? The only reason I brought some of these books was because I knew, for example, I'm gonna see her boy, and so because. Let me see now. I don't want to get too fancy with it. Okay, yeah, I did have it. <laughs> That's crazy. Because no, because I'm gonna see her boy, and last time I saw him. I didn't know I was going to see him. We was at the same place. Like, hey, man, if I was going to, if I was, I would put a few of your books in my bag. 
to sign. But there's a good book, there's a good chapter in this book that Haki Ma Booty edited, her boy co-edited. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get her to sign this today, Bob Herb. By any means necessary, Malcolm X real not reinvented. Uh, Bill Strickland does a great job in his chapter really taking apart Manny Marable's uh, book, All in Love. I mean, these cats all know each other uh, or knew each other. But in his chapter, what he does is lay out the fact that what Manny Marable was doing, or at least what ended up being published, because we don't know who interfered, who didn't interfere. There's a whole theory, and I tend to be in that camp, that this was a book by committee. Because a lot of his students, you know, and I won't get into that. It's completely unnecessary for what we're talking about here. But what Strickland says is, you know, some of this stuff that's in this book is inexcusable. It's innuendo. There are no sources. He said, but ultimately, this is a book that when it appeared, you know, it's basically it's a widget. You selling you selling books, whether people read them or not. And so this isn't a book that helps us deepen our understanding of Malcolm X as much as it is a book that's writ that's written for consumers. And increasingly, that's what these books are. Like when, I, when, I, when I'm going to read this King book, because I'm sure there's going to be some stuff in there I didn't know based on documents that hadn't been accessed to. But quite frankly, if Jonathan Egg didn't publish this book on King, I don't think it would make that much of a difference in terms of dealing with King. Why? Because we got a lot of what King wrote. We got a lot of what the people who were with King wrote and who King was with wrote. And we got a library full of things about King that predate his death that trace him as far back. And then we got the Martin Luther King papers, the project that uh, Clayton Carson and them, you know, and so many others are involved in is Stanford. So we don't need another King book unless you figure, you know, because, you know, he also wrote a book on Ali, this big telephone book, uh, page, telephone book uh, size book with fewer words on it per page. And I'm saying, OK, but I'm reading the propaganda. I'm sorry. No, I'm reading the uh, advanced reviews. <laughs> And so you can see what they lining up. Manny Marable's book, uh, Les Payne's daughter, Les Payne's book that his daughter finished. These are additions to the Malcolm X books, the books on Malcolm. But if they had never been published, I don't know that they would necessarily be that different. Every generation has to tell the story. And here I'm winding back into where we started, probably where you started us this morning. The whole idea of cultivating reading which is really cultivating study, which is really cultivating collective thinking for liberation, if we take it out, really is a work of recovery. Is a work of recovery. This is the back of Independence Hall. Most people don't see that. You see the postcard pictures, you see the front. I didn't go around front. I came back here deliberately because we're going around front. You know, they got it. Says there's really no place to sit. I, I, I said, let me sit. I said, no, let me go in the back because I want to make a couple of points here. Before that Liberty Bell was put across the street from here in a permanent pavilion, it used to sit in there. Nobody rang it except one day a year when they would bring it out. And I and I born with this with these two eyes right up that sidewalk right there. They would bring it out on the 4th of July. And I told you all this before, so I won't go into the details. I'll just mention it. And remember we were talking about on the 4th of July and now I'm here. See, this is the in class. Hey, y'all, we look. <laughs> we get ready to have fun this summer. So they would bring it out right here and it'd be the Liberty Bell. And then you see these little children come out with the serious sucker suits and little dresses, little summer dresses, and they all have on white gloves. And one by one, they would line up around the bell and then somebody would announce while everybody's standing out here, 
These are descendants of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. What? That five-year-old right here? Yeah. The hell? Y'all keep this tight. And one by one, they take what looks like a timpani mallet with the soft head, soft head, with their white gloves, boom, and they give them all one tap. What to the slave is the 4th of July? I'm standing there realizing that when your great, 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 grand felon was hitting, was on that bill, my great, 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 was across the street in Congo Square. And we ain't never going to make peace until everybody who breathes in this society has something to eat, a place to stay, and can fulfill their full human potential. That's what Malcolm X wanted, and that's why Malcolm X had to die. Because he wasn't saying white people can't have it. He said, y'all gonna get your foot up off my neck and we can all have it. But you don't want to do it because you gripping this whiteness. And I watched them hit that mountain. That, that child ain't done nothing to nobody. But is she gonna give up the privilege? Mm-mm. Why? Why would I? You're my friend. But now they're telling me I got to pick between your friendship and all this wealth I didn't do anything except come out of my mother's womb to get. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, option B. Okay, well, at that point, we got to fight. Knuck if you buck. But this is the point. It can't be compromised with. And so I bring that example up to say that that is the momentum of memory. It is not everybody in the city of Philadelphia because that is a ceremony they used to do before they did the ceremony everybody know about. So I would come down here early. See, these benches here, let me hold on the shit out of this one. All this round here, all this around here, over there, that's Congo Square. I'm pointing to it beyond those trees. You see, I would come down here. Statues. This is the historic district. I would come down here on days I had to go to D.C., bring my books and read all day and then go back to West Philly. Ain't nobody going to bother me down here. So if you sit in a place long enough, you see the rhythm. Your brothers and sisters for the National Park Service, the people who pick up the trash. Everybody, I see the people, the people who sleep in this park overnight and get up and leave in the morning. You sit somewhere long enough, you'll see. And Prof, you know, because you do your walk every day, it changes you when you slow life down. This is why George Carver said, y'all want to know how I do my science? Robert Gottlieb told you, an editor is a reader. I read. George Carver said, you know what I do? I get up in the morning, the plants tell me what they can do. Why? Because I'm walking. Not in the lab. Not first. I'll be in the lab later on. Right now, I come. <laughs> That's one of my mama's favorite songs. I come to the garden along with me. It's still on the road there. <laughs> y'all know that song. Some of y'all know that one of them old good old good ones. And he walks with me and he talks with me. You, you can see Carver walking through. What? You can do what? Hold on. Let me get a little piece of that leaf. Now you done made plastic out of something. Well, how did you? Don't worry about it. It was the smell. I know that smell. That's the smell I've smelled before. But you got to slow down to get that smell in your nose and know what it is. My point, though, is that everybody doesn't have to do that. But the ones that do acquire that shape everything else. Though everybody not a founder of this criminal enterprise. But the spectacle, they will come out here early in the morning, hit their bell, and then around noon, maybe 11 o'clock, on the other side, that's where the spectacle 
That's where you got the choir, the black choir. That's why you got the mayor. That's where you give out the Medal of Freedom. That's on the other side of the building. Most people on the other side of the building who show up for the spectacle that used to be July 4th, 7, uh, July 4th every year, that doesn't take place over here anymore because they built the National Constitution Center across Market Street. We'll go over there one day. You see, most of those people don't know what happens around the choir because this ain't for you. But see, I'm standing here. Me, the black people who work for the Park Service, we damn near the only black people out here. And so maybe some casual observer who walk by. What they doing? You want to come? Nah, man. Why? You got somewhere to go? Nah. I don't want to sit here. I'm going to stand here. And now, that was easily 15 years ago. Now, if you try to do it again, half the people out here will be on their cell phones. Like what he says in Stolen Focus. <laughs> I'm at Graceland. My nephew looking in the phone. In the room that the phone is mirroring. He said, just put the phone down. Look around. Now I'm looking in my bed. And you know what the museum people do now? Instead of trying to encourage people to put their phones down, they build an exhibits with QR codes. Why? Because you hit the scan this and it transforms this. You can read more about it. Okay, I understand it's a concession, but I'm not scanning nothing. Don't y'all got a, a companion uh, volume to the exhibit? Oh yeah, we got one. We got one in the bookstore, but the whole thing's online. Why don't you want to be online? Because I'm here. I can go online anywhere. And it doesn't enhance my experience. I want to see Katherine Johnson's picture next to Mae Jemison's spacey, next to Nichelle Nichols' Uhura costume. And I just want to look at these things together as collide. And now my mind ain't on Nineveh sisters. My mind is now ancient Egypt. I'm thinking about Queen T. And it would have never happened if it hadn't been sitting here instead of trying to scan a QR code and listen, or listen to somebody or watch somebody tell me what I'm looking at. No, no, no. And then as I'm looking at it, I'm peering over in the corner there in this Afrofuturism exhibit, and I see Regina King's costume from Watchmen. Now I'm thinking about black women, and I'm thinking about a specific kind of black woman. I'm thinking about my mama, my sister. Now I'm way past science fiction and science. Now I'm thinking, and now I'm back on Mae Jemison because you know she was a dancer and African American studies major when she was in Texas. And I'm thinking about how do we get our young people to understand the humanities are at the, at the center of STEM? Better yet, how do we abolish the concept of STEM and humanities and get back to the original concept of ways of knowing? Oh, this is looking at stuff. I don't want to look at a damn QR code. I understand those of you who do, if you're a digital native and that's all you know. My challenge now is to get three of y'all to not come in here on these QR codes because you have something I don't, which is what? You speak the language of the people who are going to automatically go to the device. But if I can pull three of y'all out of these 300 to think the other way, you will be the ambassadors to jailbreak the rest of them. This is a work of recovery. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there are very few people in the city of Philadelphia who know that that square over there, Washington Square Park, is the site of the original Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in the social structure we call the United States of America. And I guarantee you that of that tiny group, even fewer know that before all that, it was where they buried the people for yellow fever. And there are even fewer who know that it was Congo Square. But guess what? Now, everybody in here knows that's the act of recovery. But it has to be done accretively. There's no signage over there. You know how I know it's Congo Square? 
because when I came to Philadelphia, Africans would meet over there July the 3rd and drone. They wouldn't do it on July 4th. Why? For the same reason Fred Douglas gave his What to the Slaves the 4th of July speech on July 5th. We're not going to use that funky date. We'll either go before or after the Africans who I knew, Michael Cord, the Avenging the Ancestors Coalition, all of them right there fought a pitched battle. And I was proud to be one of those people and to bring all the Freedom School students. We did that right in this area to wage war. Why? Because on the other side of this building, there is the Liberty Bell Pavilion that they built. Now that Liberty Bell is there permanently, they don't bring it out for you to hit over here. They keep it in there and they go over there with the white gloves in the mouth and tap it. And you don't get to see it now. But beyond that, there's something called the president's house. It's not a pretty day today. I thought about setting up over there, but I said no, nah, because we talked about Hercules and Ona Judge and all them. That's where they escaped from right over there. That was the first uh, house where the president of the United States lived. George Washington lived over there and they was like deuces <laughs> and it's right over there. But it wouldn't be there if the Africans who every year on the 3rd of July would meet up over here in Washington Square Park, what we call Cargo Square here in the governance formation, the ways of knowing as an act of recovery. In other words, movement and memory. Remember that sixth category in our Africana Studies framework. How did it do Africans remember that experience? That's why it's Africana Studies. It's not black history. The Africans who would engage in that ritual every year, when they found out that they were going to redesign stuff over here, they said, hell, like hell you are and leave us. And they fought like hell. And over years we fought. And that interpretive center now opens. The first thing you see on Market Street is black folk. This is where George Washington lived. Yeah, but we ain't talking about George Washington. You go over here to the Flea and Felons building for that. We talking about the Africans, the little boys and girls. We talk about only judge and Hercules. We talk about all them people that escaped or the ones that didn't get the chance to escape. So the whole thing now is a beautiful interpretive center about us. Now you can go see the Liberty Bell. Now you can go see your people and you can keep telling your story, whether it be uh, Nicolas Cage climbing up in the balcony to get some spy map that, that Benjamin Frank. Yeah, because see, the active recovery doesn't always have to be factual. It just has to propel the social structure that it supports. And so that's why the act of reading, the act of study is an act of liberation because you no longer have to depend on these people who need you to move through the world in a certain way to continue to consume, to continue to propel their profits. You, 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 if you leave your education to them, which is the point Malcolm is making all the time, then that's what, that's what you'll end up with. So let me just do a couple other things this morning. Um, we were talking since Saturday, since last time we were together, uh, uh, about another brother, a brother who just made transition. And you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm, uh, mm. for those of you who uh, know about that, that Canadian goose, <laughs> not commercial. You know, Wawa is, is an indigenous name for a goose, Canadian goose, just, you know, the famous Wawa. Mm coffee but I'm thinking a lot about this challenge that I mentioned a few minutes ago how do we punch through the noise so when Hart is writing a stolen focus about why we are in a society where this consumer driven 
social structure we're in requires more and more spectacle. It's faster and faster, which robs us of our capacity to draw ourselves back in. Something that those who practice meditation and those who will watch yoga on YouTube will remind us is as easy to begin to reclaim with You know, it's as easy to reclaim, to begin to reclaim the Zen. And as, an, as a reader, I know that there are moments when it takes me some time to ease into a text. Because if I've been doing the rapid fire and I've been doing this grading season, a lot of grades, we've got grades, we're working, we're grading, we're turning this stuff, people graduating, we graduating, we're graduating, okay, okay, okay. It takes me a minute to ease into a book. I gotta reread a page, reread a line, reread a sentence, and then as I present it unlocks and then I can fly but it takes longer and longer the more I'm away from that flow of previous process but as we're talking about that and thinking about that I've been thinking this week about this brother who just made transition because he was a master writer a master reader he was and is an outside force and he is someone who has touched countless people who didn't know they were being touched by him back in the early 70s maybe like 1973 or 74 he wrote one of dozens of plays musicals things he, he was a playwright among many other things uh, the name of the play, which is a musical, which actually they recorded an LP called Black Fairy. Black Fairy. Some of y'all may know. Let me look in the app. Again, the technology is great when you connect it to the other stuff. Black Fairy. Let me see if any of y'all seen Black Fairy. You may know uh, a poem that he wrote for Black Fairy. Very simple poem. Deceptively simple. Called Hey Black Child. Hey, Black Child. This poem has been recited. It's almost, in some ways, in the category with some of the other things that came out very specifically of the 1960s in the Black Power Movement. There are many people who couldn't tell you why, except they took a dance class or as a child, they heard somebody came to their classroom or they were at the community center. And they don't know, they, they you know what Yoruba? I don't even hear, I don't know even Yoruba language. You don't? Okay, you ever heard this song? Funga alafia, ache, ache. Funga alafia, ache, ache. Funga alafia. The warm up. <laughs> Welcome, ache, ache. Funga alafia. People know that. Or somebody say, I go. The response, I may. Are you listening? Are you here? I'm listening. I am here. I go, I may. I go, I may to get everybody quiet. These little things coming out of the African Senate movement, the African Senate, man, that conversation we had Monday night at Office Hours, if y'all not in Nubia, oh man, we had a long conversation. The sister came in and walked us through some of the history of the African Senate movement. She's a member and a part of the Nation House Collective. So uh, if you're in uh, Nubia, I would recommend if you missed Office Hours uh, last Monday night to go back and look at that recording. He taught a class. But that's where a lot of that language comes from. 
you know, the introduction of Kiswahili's names. There's a lot of Imani's running around, a lot of Nia's running around, you know, because they come out of that being touched. Well, this brother touched with this poem, Hey Black Child. It became so popular that you hear children recite it. Black children recite this. And it's often attributed to Maya Angelou. Even been attributed to County Cullen. A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune did a long article on this brother, and they said that, you know, uh, your brother Brian Collier won all kind of awards. Uh, the illustrator, children's book illustrator, was approached by the publisher. His publisher said, you know, this Hey Black Child is everywhere. What you think? He read the poem. He said, this is great. I'd like to illustrate this. He said, I thought it was my Angelou too. Did a little digging. Wasn't my Angelou. The brother's name is Eusene Eugene Perkins. U-S-E-N-I. Eusene. It's from uh, Malawi. Malawian language. It means tell me. Eusene Eugene Perkins. Born 1932. Made transition early this week. Uh, so they put together a book after many years. This book was published in 2017. It's called Hey Black Child. I missed a little copy. I stuck it in my bag. I only brought one bag. I know y'all think I'm about my bag. But yeah, I got, because I got to get Herb to sign this. I also wanted to sign this because this one's a little bit hard to get. This is the travel diary that Malcolm X uh, did when he was in uh, those, all those African countries and did the Hajj in 1964. Herb Boyd and Elisha, Malcolm's daughter, edited that. Uh, published Third World Press. So I had to get that. Um, hey, Black Child. And y'all may have seen this performed. It's very simple, but let, I'm going to read it once right quick because it's real quick. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you see the pages, you see how, look at the black children. That man, this dude, man, got great illustration chop. Uh, you know. But the poem is simple. It's like, hey, black child, do you know who you are? Who you really are? Do you know you can be what you want to be if you try to be what you can be? Hey, black child. Do you know where you are going? Where you're really going? Do you know you can learn what you want to learn if you try to learn what you can learn? Hey, black child, do you know you are strong? I mean, really strong. Do you know you can do what you want to do if you try to do what you can do? Hey, black child, be what you can be. Learn what you must learn. Do what you can do. And tomorrow, your nation will be what you want it to be. Very simple. Deceptively simple. The good poets will tell you. Saint Sanchez tell you this. Then Sanchez will write a poem, revise a poem, edit a poem. What does it mean to be a poetry editor? Oh my goodness. How do you edit poetry? It's got to be different than editing a story for a newspaper or a novel, you know, or long form fiction or short stories. A poetry editor. A poetry editor? You see any Perkins? What you what you about to say? <laughs> I put poetry in a different category. I put I put poetry in a category of, of art. Like you, you can you edit an artist? You know, um, 
you know, think of your greatest artist. Uh, they they have muses, which is quite a different thing. But poet poets are artists. They're, I put that in a completely different category than just the writers book. are artists. You? Mm, not a. I guess a, a writer can be an artist. But I think of writing as a craft, uh, one that is shaped and molded, that is collaborative and collective. But art in the form of poetry is meant to penetrate bone and marrow. And so, you know, it, it is a different, it's a different thing. And it's not a skill as much as it is a, a gift or a talent. I think um, poets, poets are, are ordained by something outside of, this round I'm, as a person that is not a poet you know i i can appreciate it uh, i i i'm growing to appreciate it because i didn't have the capacity to really um be in touch with myself enough to sit with somebody's thoughts and examine myself because that's really like when you look at art it's an examination yes. of stuff that's a whole yes. different category that's probably do a whole lesson on it. We probably need to get some well, poets in here because I'm not well. Well, let, let me let me ask you a quick question about two of your good friends, Kwame Alexander and Michael Harriet. Are they poets? Ooh. Well, that book right above your head, we know it's poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he yeah, wrote yeah. Door No Return. Kwame did that on because he's a poet. What about Mike? Mike, Mike is something else. You know, Mike is a is. Because <laughs> I've been reading Black AF. <laughs> yeah, no, as I as I sit with him, yeah, I mean, I guess yes, yes, yes. Mike is a poet at first, and then a writer. There's some poetry in his. Yes. In other words, there are turns yes. of phrase that just make yes. you stop. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> but you know what? In in both cases, both of these men were formed and forged outside of the gaze of whiteness. That's right. Come on now. That, you know, which to me, I look at Kwame and Michael as. The possibilities when we center our children in, uh, when we steep them in uh, a knowledge of self, not you know juxtaposed to the power structure that we currently are in. And Mike right. being home homeschooled with that center room, in 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 the in the middle of South Carolina, in the Gigi loving his mama. Yes, yes. Um, but, but with a bunch of elders also. So That's there's right. that multi generational and Kwame, who his daddy is. Man, you just said you just asked me a question. I have to sit with for a minute. So thank yeah, you. yes, it's words. Yes, they're both poets, and I'm not going to listen. You, you, so many of your books, which have done incredibly well commercially, you have to inhabit the lives of other people who people think they know. Right. So I mean, th in other words, how how have you communicated? Whether it be Don DeWest, or LL Cool J, it doesn't matter. How do you? communicate so that someone picking up that book will say well damn this you know what she's a human being i never thought about this that's a, that's a form of poetry in there too i mean because you got to get past the press release stuff past the performance stuff you know what i'm saying well, i guess more like maybe i'm a sculptor so if we put it in the oh artwork, so so i promise y'all we didn't plan this no so Go ahead. Like you're taking someone's essence and molding it into something that other people can appreciate this versus something from absolute the universe somewhere out there and and creation through through words that's that's a different skill so yeah I'm well now we look every time I, I came down here i didn't miss the fourth of july when i lived in philly almost 20 years if i was in philadelphia i came down here to bear witness to this crime 
because I watched them reinforce the memory. They would read the Declaration after they rang the Liberty Bell. And the lines in the Declaration of Independence where these criminals are accusing their daddy, George III, of stirring up insurrection against them, meaning what? Threatening to arm us, the black people. And then I hear them say, boo. And I'm like, you booing me, but you don't even know it. This is the thing. So anyway, I'm saying that to say that what you've just described is protected by the ancestors. I would come down here not because I was begging for my humanity. I'm like Malcolm. Nah, I'm not begging you for nothing. I'm like automatics. I would say I don't, I don't, I don't have clients. I don't do plea bargains. I'm not begging you for anything. I came down here because I was protected and I would always put in my bag a copy of Fred Douglas, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And when the black mayors, John Street, Michael Nutter, when they would get up to give the proclamations and the, and the, and the black choir would sing, mine eyes have seen the glory, I'm reading. What to the slave is the Fourth of July because Fred Douglas was a poet. When you lay, when you lay the crimes out one by one, one after the other, you will see in this world that for sheer menace and, and criminality, America reigns without a rival. That is poetry. <laughs> you understand? I'm reading this poem. And so we did not plan this because I'm standing here protected by the ancestors. I'm sitting here protected by the ancestors. And so you prosor all of we. Why? We didn't plan this. Here's where some of y'all going to say, oh, my God. Right. This is the way of knowing. Professor Hunter, you just said perhaps it's more like a sculptor. Shape. You see me, Eugene Perkins' father, Marion Perkins, one of the best known sculptors in African history in this country. <laughs> Marion Perkins. Sculptor in Chicago could work in any medium. Mary Perkins could work in stone, could work in clay. Mary Perkins used to deliver the newspapers and the wires they used to use to bind the newspapers, he would save the wires and created a way to sculpt using the wires. His son decided he wanted to be a writer. His other son, Toussaint, became an artist. Now, as you can imagine, you've seen Perkins born in Chicago. You've seen Perkins, uh, of course, not known to enough people, but known by the people who know, a central figure of the Chicago outpost of the Black Arts Movement, I keep my booty for the old back organization for Black American culture, everybody from my dude, like Colin Mike, Jeff Donaldson, the Wild of Respect, Bob Crawford. I mean, Eusini Perkins is in the center of that. Abner Joan Brown, I mean, theater, black theater, all of that, the Chicago black arts. And again, I'm not at home. Otherwise, I'll show you a whole bunch of books on Chicago black arts. Movement. There's a great special issue of Chicago Review uh, on the Chicago black arts movement. Ronnie Crawford has done a great book on it. Baba Eusini, along with Sister Julietta Richardson, the founder of and the, and the, and the spine of the history makers, uh, did a massive volume called Flight of the Phoenix, which are oral histories of the uh, Black, Chicago Black Arts Movement. And uh, But the reason I bring that up, and I can bring up now uh, Dr. Richardson and Juliana, because, of course, uh, our best interviewer, our, our really living memory, probably here today with Mama Olivisi, Baba Larry Crow, interviewed, of course he did, interviewed Bobby Yusini about 20 years ago, and it's in the History Makers database. And what you see talks about is 
how incredibly gifted his father was. How his father used to bring his friends around, other artists who were either from Chicago or in Chicago, who then you seen he got to sit with as a little boy and then as a young adult. I'm talking about some names you may have heard, uh, Paul Robeson, Charles White, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Richard Wright. <laughs> so you see, he is soaking all that up. Then he goes, oh, by the way, they moved when he was, they were little, he, he and his siblings, to the Ida Bell Wells homes, later known as the Ida B. Wells Project. They ain't there anymore. Prof, you see, Perkins went to high school at a place that's legendary in Chicago. Some of y'all know Wendell Phillips High School in Chicago. I know Kim. Delaney knows, the current director of education for the Gustavo Museum. By the way, Bobby Usini was the interim president of the Gustavo Museum uh, for a time in the early 90s. In fact, when he was growing up, he used to go over to Margaret and Charlie Burroughs' house. And of course, they are the founders of what became the Gustavo Museum. They founded it in their house. Of course, Gustavo, the brother who is credited for founding the city of Chicago, uh, that is one of the pieces that Chicago acquired. The Gusabo Museum acquired, in fact, from Marion Perkins, who's a bust of uh, Jean de Sable. But at any rate, Bobby Usini talks about going to Wendell Phillips High School and writing for the school newspaper. He's a journalist, like you, probably. He's a journalist. But he didn't know what he wanted to do. He's like to write. So he's writing. And he said, I was shaped by those, this we told Larry in the interview, I was shaped by those journalists. These teachers. And there was one teacher, well, he named a couple of teachers, but the one I'm going to name is crazy. I mean, it's not crazy, it's all ancestral. There was a sister who was on faculty at, I'm sorry, at uh, Wendell Phillips High School, who was one of the teachers who shepherded the school newspaper. And you see, he ended up being an editor of the school newspaper. And he took to that writing. Her name was Alfreda Duster. Let me look in the app, see if anybody remember that name. Chicago Alfreda Duster. Uh, and remember, I said they lived in the Ida B. Well housing projects. Anybody catch on yet? Oh, my app. Man, see, so many of y'all coming in here now, it just crashes the app. So <laughs> let, me, let me pull it back up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Who Alfreda Duster is? Yes. Yes. Somebody got it, didn't they? What'd they say, Pry? Is she the daughter of? Granddaughter. Woman? Granddaughter of the woman that's over my shoulder? Come on now. That's exactly who she was. This brother was trained by the granddaughter of Ida Bell Wells. But watch this, bro. This is the crazy thing. Where did Ida B. There she go. Where did Ida B. Wells' grandchildren live? Chicago, right? Yeah, Chicago. Where in Chicago? I mentioned it already. In her home? In the Ida they B. lived B. in the Ida B. Wells' home. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Bananas. They lived in the Ida. <laughs> now, to, you talk about the momentum of memory. You say Robert Taylor Holmes. You say Ida B. Wells. They, oh, that's where the bad people live. The gangs. Everybody, slow your roll. There was a time in this country when if you lived in the housing project, that was a step up. And and you and Bobby, you see, he tells Larry, all of them, doctors, lawyers, they grew up to do all that work. There was a time when you lived in the public housing project. That was better than the alternative and we had a community and we valued keeping each other together and getting this education. Ms. Duster trained me as a journalist. 
and she lived in the Ida B. Wells. She lived in the homes named for her grandma. Now y'all call them the projects. The momentum of memory. Hey, black child. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hey, black child. I mean, so the poem looks simple, but it's produced in the mind of someone who understands you four years old. I can't write a treatise. I got to give you something you can memorize. And you go online right now, you can find a dozen different performances of this. So many that by the time that Brian Collier and the publishers get a hold of it, they think my Anthony wrote it. Nah, you see Perkins wrote it, who was a major. In fact, Perkins went on. He went to Winston-Salem State. Then he transferred to Knoxville College, ran track, played basketball. Then he went to the Air Force, got in the Air Force, and they said, hey, your daddy a communist. Hold on, before you, no, we, we gotta check you out. They let him stay, but his daddy was a communist. <laughs> because, because, because that was the period in the 30s and 40s. That was the period you're talking about. And when you read Native Son, you're reading something written by somebody who says this world must change and capitalism ain't the way. Richard Wright is in the center of that conversation. Charles White is in the center. This whole black arts movement that comes out of Chicago, this is before the black arts movement in the 1960s. This is what my brother uh, Larry Jackson of a John Hopkins, or more importantly, my man Larry Jackson from Baltimore calls the indignant generation. This is 1930s and 40s. Uh, remember, you seen he was born, you seen he was born in 1932. He's shaped by all that. And so I'm gonna get, I'm gonna keep writing these little poems and put them in the mouths of young people. And it's gotta hit hard. And then as you get older, you realize it seems simple. Because, you know, me and Quentin Brooks was in the same writing club. We worked together. We was in OBAC. We did all that. And Miss Brooks can write them little short poems and make you think like you missed it. But you ain't really miss it. We real cool. We skipped school. <laughs> in other words, I, I don't need a whole lot of words. But the words I pick must be perfect. And because I'm a poet. But I'm also an essayist. I also write fiction. I mean, I, I write, okay, the poetry is really, to me, about combining, combining words. What do you say, Brian? No. Oh, I thought you said something. The, the, it's about word combination. So when W.E.B. Du Bois in his 700-some page book, Black Reconstruction in America, says, you see, he says, you know, the Negro emerged out of the darkness of slavery, stood for a brief moment in the warmth of the sun, drugged, turned back, and walked into slavery. Come on, man. That's poetry. <laughs> du, Bois, du Bois is a poet. I mean, the whole idea of combining words in a phrase that is explosive in a way that whatever else you write, that thing resonates in your head. Malcolm is a poet. This is what John Clark would say. I gave him all them documents and he saw something I didn't say, but then he get up in public. Even when Malcolm was wrong, you know how many people now are driven into a, a almost an intractable ditch because Malcolm told the story of the house Negro and the field Negro. It was people in the house poisoning people. It was people in the field telling on people. But forever, you're a house Negro. What just happened? Malcolm X created a metaphor that so inhabited our psyche that now the whole class tension is there. I don't know how we ever gonna get rid of the house Negro and the field Negro. Because he used it as a metaphor. By the way, if you haven't seen the Clarence Thomas documentary on Frontline, I recommend it highly. This is what happens. In fact, again, Du Bois talking about Carter G. Woodson. When Woodson died, remember in Masses and Mainstream, and Du Bois opens his obituary of Woodson. It says the life of Carter G. Woodson, who died in April uh, 1950. 
is evidence of what race prejudice can do to a human soul and what it is powerless to prevent. Clarence Thomas's life is an example of what race prejudice can do to a human soul and what it is powerless to prevent. So, see, everybody know where I am. They're coming down here. Now, <laughs> that's good. All right, but uh, so what I was about to say, oh, I'm saying I lost my train of thought. Yes, okay, I got it. What we're seeing with Eusini Perkins is a life that's shaped by all these artists. It's community life. And he, what he's giving us is there for us to get, but we got to do these acts of recovery. That's why we're doing this Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. Uh, he ends up as a social worker uh, for many years. Uh, in fact, all the folks in the National Association of Black Social Work Workers, uh, President Haley, Lisa Haley, my sister, and all the folk there, you know, our, our celebration and condolences go out for the life of Eusene uh, Perkins uh, as he transitions into ancestorhood. Uh, he worked, he was over the Better Boys Foundation. Uh, his work, because he grew up in the project, he wrote a very important book back in the 70s called, I think it was 1976. Again, most of this stuff's in storage. And plus, I'm at home anyway. So uh, it's called Home is a Dirty Street about what conditions can do to our children and how we have to intervene on their behalf. He wrote many different forms of rites of passage work. And uh, back in the late 70s, he started a journal called the Black Child Journal. I'm very happy uh, that that journal continues. It was on hiatus for a while, but it's been brought back. Paul Hill in Ohio, uh, he does a lot of stuff on rites of passage. Uh, they still publish it. You can go look it up, look for the Black Child Journal. Um, but as uh, Bobby Yusini told Larry in the interview in History Makers, uh, when Larry was asking him about the journal, he said, I felt like I wanted something that would communicate to people. So you see Asa Hayes writing in there, uh, Wade Nobles is writing in there, Naeem Akbar, some of, some of our brightest people, and Zynga Walker Kopik, um, very important people writing about child development in this Black Child Journal. But Bobby Yusini was financing it out of his pocket. Never afraid of hard work. He tells Larry, I did everything. I worked as a milkman. I delivered newspapers. I delivered flowers. I did, I did all that because I was young and had a young family, you know, to support. He said, but as a professional, I am a social worker. He says, and maybe is it such a thing as non-professional? I'm a writer. The man was an artist to the point you were raising earlier, probably. I think these artificial barriers, kind of these genres that are developed, sometimes they prevent us from seeing that the creative process overflows all those things. And you said, you know, I think of it more like, maybe I'm more like a sculptor. Well, I think if Bobby Yusini, we could hear his physical voice, he might say, yeah, me too. <laughs> He's like, but you're a poet. No, I, I think I like what you said, I, a sculptor. My daddy was a sculptor. I mean, so I knew how to get something out of a stone. You know, he said, my daddy was good with the chisel. It's a rock. No, it's not a rock. It's a person in there. I'm going to show you. I'm going to pull that. Out. It's the process of seeing something that other people can't see, and so you got to get it to the point where they can see it. Whether it be a Malcolm X, whether it be Eugene Perkins, the Hey Black Child, whether it be his father, uh, Marion, with that stone. And so he did that social work. He published, like you said, these important books. Uh, last time I saw him, in fact, it's been some years now. The National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America and Cobra had its conference in. Uh, Indianapolis. It was before 2017 because Mother, Mama Mari, who was another one of his friends, his comrades in the Black Arts Movement, the poet and essayist, 
she was there. She performed, in fact, at the banquet, uh, Molly Evans. And so, but he was there uh, selling parts of, is that 10? I'm going to talk through the bill. Yeah. Um, and then close it up. It's very nice to be, I mean, look, hey, I'm just telling y'all now, this summer, we're going a whole lot of places. You know, it ain't Dr. Seuss, all the places you're going. And one of the lines in there, the court says, and they're giving them out at graduation. Now everybody getting copies of all the places you go. Uh, sometimes you'll see two things that will scare you right out of your pants. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, now that's cool. But we're gonna be about to wind up. But, but um, as I was saying, this last time I saw him, I bought the latest copies of the Black Child Journal. He published that out of his own pocket, and he tells Larry, "I could have sustained it." Oh, I just go ahead. Go. Keep there they go. Look at my <laughs> mothers. It's a lot of it's a lot of mothers in there. Two mothers and one mother to be. Or anyway, so at some point in the far distant future, I mean, I'll be dead. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that um, and I, and I, I kind of wind this up. He said, if I'd had five hundred subscribers or a thousand, we could have sustained it. But I only ended up with around a hundred consistent subscribers. Well. It reminds us that you need resources. Those early issues of the Black Child Journal, if you go to the website, what Paul and them have done, they reproducing the early ones. You're not gonna get, you know, these people with these big foundation grants, but they run around talking about they gonna write this curriculum and they gonna do this and do that. I'm like, you know, if you're a reader, when I pick up these things, I look on these websites and I look at all this stuff, whether it be, you know, and I worked for public education in this city. So, you know, when here comes Johns Hopkins with, with talent development, here comes success for all. Or you can go to the people who did curriculum, like you see me Perkins. But you don't want to go to him. Why? Because you didn't do it. You can't control it. And it's really speaking to our children. Hey, black child, it's speaking to our children. And so that stuff now, technology enables us to have access to it. But what this space allows us to do is point the direction to say, hey, check this out. And then little by little, we engage in these acts of recovery. And as we do that, we understand that we don't need anything else other than to anchor ourselves in ourselves. So I'm going to um, just mention, you know, if y'all in Philly, you're around, come to the, to the symposium today. We're going to be up uh, at Uncle Bobby's. There's a church right next door. It's a big place. Um, it's been 48 years since Malcolm took that first international trip and spent four plus months on the continent of Africa and then went through France and England. He went back a couple of times to all of those places, most of those places. Um, we have to be constant. We have to be constant. And if we are constant, we will triumph. So happy Mother's Day. Oh, I, I agree. I wanted to, um, <laughs> one of the most beautiful images and your mom is an ancestor. So we got her a powerful realm and your sister. Very beautiful uh, time with whose moms are ancestors. I just, you know, uh, this could be a difficult time. Mm. So I wanted to, you know, just sit with, with, and remind folk that we are here because of yes. of, of a woman that uh, made the decision to give birth to us uh, and, right. and pour into us like, all of the things that that comes with, right? So, that's right. Um, that's happy right. Mother's Day to my mom and and all of yes, the Happy Mother's Day, your mom. Yes, yes, all of the people. Do, you 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 call her first thing in the morning, or how do you do it? You know, um, I don't I don't ascribe to you know I don't want I don't need to be the first person in to say I know that's right. And 
And you know, and you I, talk to your mom all the time. I was gonna say, <laughs> the pandemic has completely shifted our relationship because I, I ain't trusted to not be out in them streets. So I was like, where you at every day? I love <laughs> like, it. Every day, I I you better get out that grocery store. But so it's I love it. I love it. Last three years, so that. Oh, that I should I should mention before we leave, uh, one of the fathers. Uh, I was in Sankofa uh, Thursday night. Uh, our brother Hakeem Adi, remember a couple of months ago, I mentioned he wrote this new book on Africans in Britain and the Caribbean. It's crazy, Prof. Hakeem Adi, who is one of the finest historians we have, Hakeem is the first black professor of history in the history of Great Britain. But he's he's still here. I, I, they asked me to introduce him. Holly and Shriek are actually in Chicago. They're hanging out with Jeremiah Wright, if you can believe that. They probably, Jeremy might be here right now. So they weren't in town. They said, go down there and introduce Hakeem. I said, that's my man. I'm glad I'm glad he's in town. I said, do y'all know how absurd that is? This is not an old man. In other words, England is so retrogressed that this man right here, that's the first professor, black professor of history in the country. And he's still here and he's still like young. His people from Nigeria, he's born. Anyway, I raised it to say this. As we were preparing for the for the thing, as a packed house, a lot of Nubians there, a brother named uh, William Gray came up. William Gray is a Nubian. He don't miss nothing. He's here today. He uh, he says, I never miss Saturday. I never miss Monday night. His father made transition a couple of days ago. And he said, he said, I want to thank you. He said, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Professor Hunter. I want to thank the Nubian family because this space is so affirming and light. And we were, and so he asked me about libation. We were talking about libation because he's going to do libation. He said, I've never done it before. I said, you can do it. He said, I don't know. I said, oh, no, man, don't think of, think about it like prayer. We talked a long time before. So I just wanted to raise him because this is, this, this is, this is the thing. So yeah, happy Mother's Day. And for everybody, like you said, it can be a difficult time. I don't, I don't not miss my mom, but she's always here. But you're right. There's a moment where it's like, ah, I can't just call her right. with the phone. Right. <laughs> I mean, but to his point, you know, you, you have shaped so many uh, people's view of and what it means to not be here anymore in mm. a physical form, you know? Yes. You have made it really crystal clear that the work that we're doing will continue because we're never, you know, we're never, we know scientifically matter can't be created nor destroyed, but to center it on a spiritual realm, and this book right here, which I'm going to have a talk with Dr. Black on Monday, he's going to be- Yes! On- I was like, ooh, Larie and I were talking about it a little bit on Thursday. But man, I'm like, I'm 12 pages in and my whole world is like, what the hell just happened? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, um, so I see you you got out of well strong. I did you move her up there on the top too? No, I know no, you had Drew McCaskill got me that because he, he is a Barbie, you know, so he no 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 me. yeah, but I, I, that's the one, but that that is probably the best one. This is the, this is a uh, you know something Clay Kane gave me, so I was like, she gonna always okay. be on my shoulder because that's no my question. That's my inspiration. I, I live because she did, and so and I, I love the brothers. Uh, made sure you had her like that. Yeah. See, this is community. That's how we do. It. This, you know these fake wars that y'all uh, uh, embroiled in on social media. Come on, come on, stop it, stop it, stop it. Even even and on the, the celebrity side, we 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 uh we we continue to send best energies to brother Eric. Shame that his daughter had to come out and get some of these trolls about to paint, but it's okay. <laughs> we, we get you, you know everybody. You know, let's just remember to be kind to each other.